Hey everybody, this week we are discussing In Bruges, a 2008 uh, suspense dark comic uh, film. Uh, as always, this is going to be spoiler heavy. We're going to pretty quickly dive into the, uh, the film. If you haven't seen it, we do recommend you watch it. Otherwise, this discussion will make no sense and will spoil a pretty great movie for you. So, John, what is In Bruges about? Well, Mike, In Bruges is an instant classic Christmas movie. We join a young Irishman and his fatherly mentor as they take in the beauty of a small, historically rich European city cloaked in the beauty of Christmas time. Watch as Ray finds love and redemption in the fairy tale like backdrop of Bruges. This heartwarming tale is sure to go down as an all time family film for the holidays. <laughs> this, thank you, John. This is this film could be your life. <laughs> Not bad, I, right? I tried not to lose it mid talk. So yeah, you got me. You got me. I got you. I didn't think I, I needed to change it up and I was like I remembered suddenly, holy shit, it's a Christmas movie. Yeah. Yep. <laughs> yep. <laughs> that was it, it is. I think the last day is Christmas is in the film. Yeah. Or or the day before or something yep. like that. Yeah. They talk about it a lot. Welcome to This Film Could Be Your Life. Uh, today we're going to be talking about M. Bruges, which is actually one of my personal favorite movies. Uh, before we get into just general observations or what we call stray thoughts, uh, John, what was your first experience yes. with this movie? I was trying to remember. I think I watched this movie because of you. I don't know if that timeline works out, but is it possible you were telling me about this five or six years ago? Absolutely. I, I actually put in my notes that this was one of the first movies I evangelized to people about. So yes, that is accurate. I think because and we had only we had, we had not known each other for that long, five or six years ago. Um, I assume it was when so, you know, we would meet weekly and I think it was near the beginning of that. Uh, we connect a lot of movies and you pointed me towards this movie and I had never heard of it. Um, I haven't seen actually to this day, I haven't seen anything else. The director has done. Uh, the biggest thing is, is three billboards from last year sure. right, or two yeah. years ago. Um, but I haven't seen anything else by him. Um, but I, I did see this movie and was very quickly enamored with it. Uh, I will say I don't rewatch it very often. It's a little too dark for me sure, to be honest sure. with you. It's not like it, it is just not a, a, a feel good movie, even though it is very funny and it is very meaningful. Um, but I do. I mean, I, I did immediately grasp the the depth of the film and the way that it talks about subjects that I think are very seldom explored in films. Uh, but we'll, we'll get to that later, but yeah, I've besides the first time I watched it in this week, I've probably seen it uh, two or three times at most, but I do really like it. Sure. Yeah. Yeah. This was a, one of the like foundational movies for me, you know, I was in high school yeah. for the run of kind of 2007 to 2009. Um, I guess you All could take it movie years. Yeah. I guess you could take it back to 2006. Um, 
but I remember I mean, it culminated in Avatar. Get out. Um, but I remember <laughs> I remember seeing movies, you know, like There Will Be Blood, No Country for Old Men. And then we I would always go see these movies at this, you know, every town used to have them. It was this like run down indie theater called Miracle Five. Yeah. That was just a yeah. dump. But man, they played, you know, foreign films. They played films that would never make it to an AMC. And it was a crucial age because, like I said, I was I was basically sophomore to senior in high school. I was just starting to really think about movies more than just kind of watching them for enjoyment or entertainment. And I remember coming across this movie, watching it in that small theater and just being blown away. I mean, on one hand, it's really good. Uh, Like you said, it captures some really meaningful themes that most films don't go after. And it Mm -hmm. also was just the kind of movie that blew my mind because I just didn't know you could make a movie like that. And I guess what I mean by that is actually it was the first dark comedy that I saw done perfectly. Uh, I mean, like really well in which I was laughing hysterically at times. Uh, Some of the dialogue is would totally get the movie canceled nowadays. I did notice that on the rewatch. Yeah. Um, But then it would also uh, bad or awkward comments about homosexuality in here. Yes. Or the mentally handicapped. It was not great. Yeah. Um, but at the same time, it was it would switch these poignant or very dark moments without me feeling uncomfortable by it, I guess you would say, or that it was yeah. out of place in the movie. Maybe that's a better way to say it. So it was the first movie that I really saw that way. And we'll talk about it tonally in a little bit. But um, it immediately was a movie that, like I said a few minutes ago, that I evangelized to a ton of people. I went and saw it maybe four or five times in theaters, brought new people every time. Uh, and it's still even on the rewatch stands as one of my my personal top 10 favorite movies. And I want to be clear, I'm not saying yeah. best movies of all time, but in terms yeah, of absolutely. my desire to come back to it, what I get out of it, it's just like a never ending, almost like treasure trove of themes or yeah. scenes or whatever else, which is amazing because it's what an hour 45. It's not even that long of a film. So no, I think it really betrays. So I, I like I said, I haven't seen any other movies by. So it's Martin McDonough. Um, yeah, but the one thing I, I do know, billboards, yeah, yeah, and he had at least one movie before this. But what he his main thing was playwriting, mm. um, and that is very obvious to me in this kind of movie. You were talking about the strength of I think I think this movie lives and dies on characters and dialogue, which obviously is like what a play lives and dies on. Um, and I think so. I, I just think that's very apparent and something I seized on very early that it is just a remarkably well-written, well-characterized, well-structured movie. You're right. It's it's like a perfect length. It doesn't overstay its welcome. It doesn't go down stupid tangents. It pretty much stays focused. Uh, yeah, I think in some ways it is a, a really great movie. I have read a lot of criticism of him as a director since I haven't seen other movies of his, I don't feel super qualified to uh, d- talk about that. I will say in this movie, in some ways, it is shot very straightforwardly, it seems. Um, again, it kind of that kind of goes back to the play-like nature of it. Yeah. Uh, but I, there's nothing offensive in that sense. Like I just think it's much stronger in terms of dialogue characterization. Than, than maybe other movie things, but that's not bad. That's just the nature of the film. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, and you think about it, there's only one action sequence. It's the long chase scene at the end 
the rest of it is very much play like it is two people in one setting having a conversation. Um, yeah, which again actually makes the ahead. strength of its writing what makes it such an appealing movie. Yeah, absolutely. I will say uh, that you just reminded me that is the one scene that I gen that on the rewatch this time I actually thought was paced kind of bad, and I and I realized the whole scene with them in the hotel and the pregnant um, um, hotel owner that they're like, well, we have to get out of the building because we're not going to shoot her. It's a very funny scene. Uh, And maybe you you can maybe convince me that it's necessary in terms of characterization, but I had forgotten about it. I thought they went straight from the clock tower to the movie set. And uh, I think it's actually like, it kind of drags it down. And I was like, you don't need this scene. It doesn't add anything to the movie. They could go straight from the clock tower to the movie set. And so I I do remember thinking that, that that was the one scene that I was, I thought we don't need this. I'm not totally sure why it's here. It's kind of funny, but I, I, at that point I was just ready for the movie to end. Yeah. That was the only strongest criticism I have of it. Yeah. I do think the one pro of that scene is the, the, winking at the characters knowing they're in a film uh, it's the great line from fines sure. where he says or harry he says uh don't be crazy this is the shootout or something like that yeah yeah and you're does. like that's that's true it's a pretty neat little g- uh, gimmick in the middle of the movie but yeah, i think you're right and i, I mean, do i think it also in a sense you're com- yeah go ahead no i also just think it feels out of place because of what we already said the strength of the movie yeah. is so often the philosophy Um, the genuineness of the dialogue, um, the slow moving of the film, even in some ways that tries to capture Bruges. And it does feel out of place to suddenly have this long chase scene, which they also do kind of comically, like with Harry catching his breath halfway through or having to look at a map. Like there are some great moments where it kind of, it's like, Hey, this is an action scene, but these are also normal people. And it like drags us back over and over again uh, to not let these become, heroic or above average human beings if that makes sense yeah absolutely it it it, in a weird way it's grounding it it's not really grounding it because it's still fantastical but it's it's winking in a knowing way at at what it's doing i was going to mention too the line one of one of the funniest exchanges is when they say okay we're going to count down you're going to run out i'm going to run out counting down from three okay and they sit silent for a second a couple seconds i was like Wait, are you counting or am I counting? Well, obviously, I thought you were counting. That was pretty funny. I did appreciate all of that. Yeah, yeah. It's a great scene. The comedy of it's great, but you're right. It does feel out of place. So, John, I want to spend some time talking about the genre and the tone of this movie, which you've already kind of hit at. But I think it's one of the truly most unique movies um, and how it captures a number of, we'll say, areas of tension or paradox. Um between but that shows up particularly in the genre in the way it hops around so obviously it's a dark comedy like from the opening line it has that epic opening where he says after i killed him i dropped the gun in the thames washed my residue off my hands in the bathroom of a burger king and walked down our home to await instructions and then almost immediately after that pause you have him just complaining to gleason's character about how bruges is a total shithole right and yeah, and I really think I mean, so right from the start, you're like, there's this really serious moment and then there's this really hilarious moment. But I think more than that, yeah. it's like really highlighted by the two major turns of the movie. 
So the movie is hilarious from its opening. And then you get to this scene where there's the scene at the tower, right? And Farrell mm. um, or Ray gets into conflict with the well, fat family, the obese family. Um, <laughs> and it's absolutely absurd. And then he comes out um, or goes on, they go to the next one and he starts complaining about having to go touch the blood of Christ, essentially in this museum. It's this old building. Gleason's super excited about it. And uh, essentially he comes out, he sits on a bench next to the ugliest dog you've ever seen. It's a hilarious yep. moment. And then bam, it goes right into the scene about how he murdered the kid. Right. Yeah. Um, and yeah. then the other turn in the movie, I think that really stood out to me this time was the hilarious phone call with Harry where they're talking about it's a fairy tale, the swans it's hilarious. And then there's this moment where Harry begins talking about Ray in the past tense. And it's absolutely horrifying. Yeah. He's like, he wasn't a yeah. bad kid. Was he right? And Ken picks up on it. Absolutely. He, and he has yeah. the line that yeah. bookends both that scene where it's, I know I'm awake, but I feel like I'm in a dream, but he says it differently. And I think yeah, those, that's, yeah. those two scenes just capture what I'm talking about the genre and the tone, this paradoxical kind of movie that's so unique. And I guess what I would ask yeah. you is one, just your general thoughts on that. But also, do you think that yeah. works in this movie? I think, yeah, I, I totally agree with, with your observations. I think it does work for this movie. I was thinking a lot about the way that movies juggle tones. And I think a lot of movies, possibly the hardest is comedy drama, right? Yeah. Um, I think a lot of movies will just make a drama and then put jokes in it. Yeah. We'll just yeah. sort of have like, this is a dramatic scene. Okay. Cut. This is now a funny scene. And you could interpret this movie as doing that. Like I could technically break down each scene and say, this is funny. This is not, but I think the overall tone, the, the really clever thing about it. And you just hinted at that's a great scene when, when he's talking on the phone with Harry, the, the clever thing is the way that the two are actually lifting each other. The comedy is giving context to the drama and the drama is giving context to the comedy. And so it's not like they are, it's not as though they're coming from different screenwriters. One of them is trying to make me laugh and one of them is trying to make mm. me think it's, it's clearly the same intuition. They're both trying to make me laugh and they're both trying to make me think. And that scene again, you're right, is great because the way that what starts as a joke gets recontextualized a few seconds later as something serious to think about. And that happens a lot. Uh, the other scene, ironically, also a conversation between Ken and Harry when they are sitting outside the restaurant, yeah. Harry has come to kill Ken and they're having this conversation. And at some points in the conversation, it's extremely funny. Um, yeah. And, yeah. but then it, it dovetails. Yeah. I, I Why could, are you going to bring we up my do... kids? Yeah. <laughs> like, yeah. But my favorite there, moment yeah. isn't, isn't even when he's making fun of the kid or when he, he's giving him a hard time about him and his kids. But when he says, you retract that bit about my kids, yeah. that's a great, yeah, it's, it's so and then good. he's like, I retract the bit about the kid. And then they have this whole civilized dialogue about, you know, him insulting his family. Or, or what's but the, then it actually dovetails into other, a serious wait, 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 wait. moment. What's the other throwaway line? It's the, where he's just like, we're in the park. And he, it reminds us like, you were in the park. What does that have to do with anything? Yeah. It's just like a great throwaway line. Sorry. Well, and, and they, they come back moment. to the alcoves as well. Yes. Did he go on yes. about the alcoves with you? 
it's great stuff, but it dovetails. It's not that that exists separately from the conversation that comes after. It dovetails into it. It feels like naturally the same thing. So I guess I'm talking about coherency. The tone yeah. is, it's a coherent tone, even though it's doing multiple things, which is great. I, I think that's one of the best things about the movie. When I think that dovetails really nicely into the other, I think, strength of this movie. So I, I agree. I think the tone and the genre are near perfect. And I think dark comedies are usually a disaster, at least on some level. And I think this one nails it. So I mean, yeah, I think that like this kind of, by way of comparison, this kind of, dark comedy I, I think of a lot with the coen brothers it's not quite the same mm. they're not as silly as this movie um they do i think try to juggle tones but i will say that i don't think they are i think a lot of the time they are less successful i'm actually hard on the coens in general yeah that's, that's my hot take for today um I, I do like them i do struggle with a lot of their movies i think about something like uh, a good example to me is something like uh, Raising Arizona is an interesting example to me that it is much more comedic than this movie. Um, but I think it, it is doing the thing I was talking about a second ago where there's almost this whiplash sensation going between the two different tones. Yeah. And like, I'm not saying like, that's a good movie. I really like that movie, but I think when I compare that to something like this, that's why I said a second ago, there's a lack of coherency sometimes coming from. Them. Yeah, I think there, so. there's a sense of it's it's it literally is just this whiplash of I'm in this funny context. OK, now I'm in the serious context. And I, I, I think sometimes with them like, geez, guys, can I don't, I don't know about this. I don't know. Yeah, it does, uh, they don't always inform each other. I think that's which is kind of what you talked about earlier. Um, yeah, exactly. And I think one of the things that is really neat about this movie, what makes it so unique is there's bits of it that you could recall from something like Reservoir Dogs or Pulp Fiction or any number of Coen Brother movies, you know, where there is this banter and there's this dialogue and it's broken up by pretty serious moments. But I think one of the things that those directors, Tarantino and the Coen Brothers, almost always have in mind is either the stupidity of their characters or the coolness of their characters. Right. So the dialogue yeah. is almost always at times otherworldly almost like even yeah. Tarantino, who has a really knack for capturing conversations I'd have about like comic books or something still almost always takes those conversations to a level where you're like, well, people don't actually talk like that. That's like too cool. Right. Yeah. And I never got that vibe yeah. from this movie. It is conversations that I could remember having when I was a bad person, um, but yeah. <laughs> um, but they're and they are broke. So there's a normalcy to it, which actually brings enormously a normalcy to their suffering, too, or to their to even the, the tragedy of the film or the dark moments of the film, yeah. which it's like this is something that happens to human beings, if that makes sense. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. There, it goes back to like the, the quote unquote groundedness of it. It yeah. doesn't the, the situations are slightly fantastic or, or, or are on not normal situations but the characterization is very grounded i'm like yeah I, I essentially buy these people um i buy into the way they're responding and the way they're talking and dealing with this So I agree. I mean, I think the tone and the genre just capture this in a way that a lot of films don't. But I think we kind of already started hitting at this, which is the real strength of the film 
is it's unbelievable characters. I mean, this is a film in which the characters interactions, the characters themselves um, are fascinating, but they also are enjoyable together. They are absolutely play off of each other perfectly, essentially. And it also walks a tightrope that I find fascinating with this. And that is the characters are both incredibly normal. You could see yourself in them at times. You could see yourself having the conversations they're having, the bickering, whatever else. And yet they also are almost universally like stand-ins for far deeper philosophical concepts, right? Sure. I read one reviewer who worked for Roger Ebert, who said basically made the point that I never thought of that they're, these two characters, Ray and Ken, are essentially the characters from Waiting for Godot. And that is that they are the people with the torturous weight that they're wanting to end. It seems pointless. They're waiting on God or on judgment. And they wait and wait and wait only to find that they don't actually want the end when it arrives, right? So there's like this level yeah. or this reading. And then there's all sorts of readings about it being purgatory. And, you know, Ray being the center, Ken's the guardian angel, Harry's the reaper or the judge. Um so there's these readings where you're like, oh my gosh, these are such lofty ideas in these characters. And yet they're also probably some of the most human characters I've ever seen in a movie. I mean, just being honest in which yeah, they're relatable um, and they are something I connect to. There's something I see myself in, which is wild when you think it's about a child murder. Right. So yeah, yeah I don't know. Where do you start with the characters? How did they come off to you on this rewatch? I, I think that the first time, Part of the strength of the movie, and this kind of gets back to the tone conversation a little bit, is I think it's it's a subversive movie in its own way. Um, when you first watch it, you have a, a decent preconceived notion of what kinds of characters you're you're watching. Mm, you know good. that they are hitmen. That comes across pretty quickly. Uh, you know that they're involved with crime. That something bad happened. And but the deeper you go into the movie the more they play against those, those stereotypes. I actually think one of the best moments of the movie that I totally forgot about is when, uh, when it's revealed, it, it's revealed very late in the movie that um, the, when Ray tried to kill or when Ray killed the priest and accidentally killed the boy, that was his first hit. And I think that's actually a very telling character moment because the thing I, I didn't realize is that, that because it's so late in the movie, you go the whole time thinking that he is this like hardened guy who's who's you know probably killed dozens of people and this is just one that went wrong. Yeah. But actually it means quite a lot when you learn that this was he he this was his first kill, that he didn't even really settle into this life and wasn't could and you can't even really think of him as this hardened criminal. Um and I think so. So it plays against those those preconceived notions in a lot of ways. It spends a lot of time unraveling what you assume about the characters. I think the best example of that is actually Harry, though. Mm, yeah. That yeah. Even and, and even like the first one or two times I saw the movie in my head, he was just kind of kind of just the bad guy. Uh, the force of, of you know, of, of killing and, and, and greed and, and criminality and whatever. And the most recent times I've seen the movie, it's become apparent to me that in, in a real sense, he's not a bad guy at all. And it he they say over and over, he's principled, he's honored. He actually doesn't do almost anything that doesn't have a certain justification to it, uh, which we're going to get to. I, I'm going to get to in, in my uh, 
talking points a little bit later, but for now, just the, just in so far as I think he has a depth to him that I wouldn't expect from that kind of character. And is in his that's emblematic of the characterization in the movie in general. Yeah. Yeah. And I do think, you know, we probably both will touch on it later, but the film definitely does have an unraveling of clarity or of dualism of our black and white characterization characterizations, right? Where as these characters go through purgatory or whatever you want to call it through this ordeal of suffering, they become more complex or their complexity comes out or they change, which I guess is a question of the film is, can they change? Do they change? Right. But yeah, all of that, again, that's what that's the power of this movie is all of those conversations are captured in a unbelievably natural way. You know, they're captured through, yeah. you know, every time Colin Farrell breaks down and, and weeps, which I guess side question, is this the best Carl Colin Farrell performance you've ever seen? Because I I was came away from this thinking absolutely um that i've ever seen almost certainly i feel like i might be missing some of his biggest ones like alexander uh i was gonna say i was gonna say like miami vice i'm glad we both went (laughs) the same direction (laughs) with that we both went for the bit uh but yeah uh, of the movies i've seen it's got to be up there i'd have to look at his filmography well and it's super interesting again I, i know we'll touch on this in later conversations but You know, it's the people who cannot bypass the um, simplicity of where they start that are destroyed. Right. Like Harry. Harry is the judge. And yet there's something about him being incapable to release those principles or that that seat of judgment that ultimately leads him to turn them upon himself. Right. And he ends up killing himself. And yet the character that survives or maybe not. Um, or the characters that ultimately go through change are the ones that find nuance or become more human or more complex as the film goes along. Just a fascinating yeah. part of the film. Yeah, absolutely. And like, you know, Colin Farrell is great. Brendan Gleeson obviously oh, is yeah. incredible. Uh, my favorite, I, I, I already have hinted at how much I like Harry. I've just, I, I've just become a huge Ray Fiennes stan in general. I just think the guys like, like his ability to be evil or charming or i mean hold on like if you really think about it he's got like he covers in schindler's list uh nazi evil he covers in harry potter just abstract pure evil uh in movies like this he's got a little bit more complexity to him you get to other you know other performances where he's he's more charming he really i feel like he could have been a james bond character like he is in james bond he's m but like he has that charm to him I don't know. I just love that guy. I think he's great in this movie. I think he walks a weird line, but makes it work and yeah. really sells all of this, the insanity of his character. Yeah. Uh, um, I think, I think it's the best performance in the movie probably. Yeah. I don't know. I, I, I go back and forth between him and Gleason. Uh, Cause Gleason, like his death scene, you're like, I don't think I've ever seen someone actually die in a movie, but I think he just died. Like he actually died. Um, and then there are some more heartwarming scenes that he just kills it with too. But I completely agree. Finds yeah. is, is unbelievable. And yeah, and you're right. The way that he kind of subverts the initial notion that this man is just evil um, is, is a lot of work. It takes a lot of work. I mean, it's probably one of the best performances I've seen from him. And that says a lot. Yeah, totally agree. I guess the last question I'd ask you about the characters is, do you consider Bruges to be a character in this movie? 
Um, that's a good question. Yes, but not in the normally when we. It's funny because it, it, it's in a sense it's a little bit of a cliche of they talk because they talk about Bruges so much, and they are doing all this work to to influence your opinion of it. I think the old like like the the subversion of the the city as a character in the film is that ultimately it is just a plot device as in it's not like I I don't think I don't think that the character of the city means particularly much to the film. Yeah. At least the way it is shot in the way that it is framed. I think that the storytelling purpose of the city means quite a lot and the way that the characters are able to interact with it and have dramatically different responses to it means a lot for the story of the film. Um, But what I I guess what I'm saying is I'm drawing a distinction. It's not like, so I was just rewatching all the president's men, the way that they, they don't talk about Washington DC. It's not a, a plot point in the movie, but it is provided characterization like the the way that it's framed and the way that they interact with the city and the way that they're shot around the city uh influences the tone of the movie dramatically i kind of feel like this movie and maybe this is just because i'm a stupid american and i don't have a prior relationship with it i feel like this could have taken place in any number of cities in europe and it wouldn't have dramatically changed uh so yeah, I don't know. I, I do think it's important to the film. I don't have the same relationship with it as I do other locations and other movies. Sure. Yeah. Yeah. And I do wonder, I mean, I do wonder if that the, the fact that you don't have a relationship with it is obviously, I think, intentional, right? It's it's yeah. meant to be a mysterious nowhere place that is ancient and yet new and and all these other things, because it's trying to capture this in-between land, right? This kind of nowhere land where they're spending an indefinite amount of time and being shaped in that process. Um, so in, in that sense, I don't know if I'd call it a character, but it does loom over the film. You're right. I think, I think president's man yeah. is a perfect example where you're like DC is the heartbeat. It is a character in this movie. Um, and this is in a more philosophical way, maybe, but not in as much of a characterized way, I guess is what I'm trying to say. Yeah. Um, so yeah, I guess And I to be honest, that could go back to like, I, I hate to just parrot other people, but I, I was thinking about his strengths as a director because I read several people criticizing them. And I think that might be a place it, 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 it would be a little too strong to say it's a weakness, but I think maybe you, that's just an example where a more experienced director might have and and you can again that he's so experienced in plays but not filmmaking i think that might be a spot where a more experienced director would be able to lean into that environment more that in this movie it just kind of becomes a thing and and it, it sort of is just a plot point exactly like if it was a play where it is something that they talk about but obviously in a play they're not in the city so there's not that much you can do with it so yeah, I don't know. Uh, overall, it's fine though. I'm game. Yeah, that makes sense. So I think one of the other perhaps most fascinating aspects of this movie is that it's pretty openly spiritual in some ways, at the very least philosophical, yeah. but I would say religious. 
Um, they play key roles in the characters and the the conversations, the the movement of the film, especially that there's this really central connection between the fantastical or the spiritual or even a fairy tale. Right. I think is probably the word I would yeah. choose to use. And then utter normalcy, you know, that it seems to believe that it's the connection of those two things or those both being true that captures our reality. And a lot of people yeah. have talked about kind of the inspirations of this film. Like I said, Waiting for Godot is a big part of that. Um, another one is Hieronymus Bosch, right? The painter yeah. um, and who painted really fantastical, strange, often grotesque uh, artwork to capture medieval morality, especially when it came to judgment, heaven and hell, kind of these uh, medieval, you know, Christian themes. And a lot of people argue that they were deeply metaphorical or symbolical, but he was really trying to capture kind of that mor moral system of judgment and condemnation in hell and then mercy in heaven, yeah. on the other hand. Uh, and it's capturing how it actually shows up in our reality through these often ironic, dualistic kind of images, right? Fantastical images. And I think when you think of the yeah. movie, you know, everything feeds into this sense of fairy tale. When you think about the actual structure, the music, the mm -hmm. look of the movie, right? Um, so often it's trying to capture a fairy tale vibe. And yet the characters constantly seem to drag us, drag us back into the reality with their like almost sheer normalcy. Uh, the characters actually never seem to be allowed to be anything but normal. Anytime you start to think of them as more so, there's something, whether it's his pouting or their banter, their conversations, Harry, like I said earlier, Harry running out of breath in the chase scene, uh, you know, any of these things that kind of yeah. drags it back to being like, these are human beings and they're normal human beings at that. So what did you pick up, I guess, in a sense, like what did you pick up when it comes to the spirituality or that connection between fairy tale and normalcy? And what do you think that's what do you think they're trying to get at, I guess, with that? Well, I mean, I think it's really fascinating. The movie, in a sense, I, I know I read at least one in one place. It is a modern morality tale. And you know, you think back to, so in the 1500s in England, right? Like actual morality plays were a thing. And yeah. you would have characters named Avarice and Greed sure, yeah. and Everyman. And, and they were playing a part and it was, it was wearing its heart on its sleeve a little bit. I think the nature of the film being a modern morality play is that it's, in some ways, it's a little bit more grounded because it's sort of a chocolate makes the, the medicine go down, right? That it's 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 going to have the humor. It's going to have the ground in this. It's, it's going to let me suspend my disbelief. But besides that, it's actually kind of wears its heart on its sleeve a little bit. It's not a subtle movie. No, and yeah, the, yeah. And the, the, the connections, it, none of this is negative, by the way, that I think we think of you know movies exploring deep ideas as having to have this insane level of of nuance and grayness and and um unclarity this is a very clear movie it is it is in some senses nuanced and gray but in other senses it is so clearly discussing more moral and ethical questions yeah sure and it is so clearly hinting not even hinting gesturing towards these spiritual ideas about morality and ethic and, and ethicality. I mean, the way that the characters 
you know, will dovetail from these from these really silly, stupid, funny conversations into very genuine, heartfelt, emotional, moral problems. Uh, I think I think is basically gets us to that place. It's the nature of how we talk about morality and how we think about ourselves uh, in that ethical kind of dilemma situation. Um, so yeah, I, I think, I think that it, the spiritual connections are right there. It, it's so uh, spiritually obsessed and, and, and that even gets back to the setting. Like it comes up constantly when they're talking about uh, t- touching the blood of Jesus. They're, they're in the medieval museum looking at the painting of judgment day. Yeah. Yeah. Um, you know, they, it's just such a clear theme of the movie. Uh, yeah. And it functions well for what he's trying to do. Yeah. I, I really, you know, one of the things that I definitely picked up, you know, when I first saw it, you know, I was studying art history at the time, obviously as a high schooler, but mm-hmm. is, is obviously the key themes of purgatory, you know, that it's, yep. again, we brought it up a couple of times, but it's this idea of the space in which you're waiting upon judgment. And you're going through the shaping of where you belong at the end of your life, right? Is the Catholic kind of theology and the working out of your salvation or sanctification or whatever you're going to say, essentially the melting away of your impurities, right? And the film really engages that thematically in a way that, I I mean, I'm not sure how else you can do it better. Um, but I really liked that, you know, cause, um, in a real serious way, I think it allowed them to engage. Uh, and you're right. Bruges feeds into this. They allowed them to engage some pretty weighty themes that. Yeah. I don't know how you touch on without almost being even more heavy handed, which is interesting mm. because the film is heavy handed. It's very open about this. And yet it doesn't feel that way. Does that make sense? It's almost like I come away thinking about these things almost I use the word subversively, but almost like without realizing that they had planted them in my head, you know? Um, yeah. Absolutely. And I guess that's the humanity of the characters, but, but it, yeah, it's, it's pretty astounding. Yeah. There's a version of this movie that is so over the top in its, in its morality and in its messaging for lack of a better word, that would just be unbearable <laughs> would be awful. Right. Yeah. But you're right. Like that's the the strength of the subversiveness. That's the humor. That's the tone. That's all of the things are working towards getting you towards these ideas without just just preaching at you, for lack of a better word. Yeah, absolutely, yeah, absolutely. Yeah, and I think that's a a really good transition to, I guess, maybe one of the last major topics before we move to our monologues, which is that the that balance or the way that it, it brings those in subversively allows it to talk about some things that I find fascinating, both spiritually and as a human being. And it made the film incredibly relatable. I think one of them yeah. is the role of the past, right? The past is almost a character in the movie, you know, especially how the past impacts the present and all the questions that that raises. And the city is obviously a backdrop of the past, right? How it's this ancient city with ancient beliefs that's just filled with modern things, whether it's gangsters or, you know, any number of modern buildings, right? Or or ideas or the movie set. And the past is obviously at the forefront of the movie in the characters. Ray has murdered yeah. this child, right? And Ken has gone through the trauma of losing his wife. And they're both 
essentially you're looking at how people have learned to or failed to learn to cope with trauma. I mean, whether it's yeah. felt fully like Ray does where he abuses himself or it's suppressed and lying just underneath the surface, like you see with Ken um, and the questions mm-hmm. that that raises, right? Where it's like, how does the past inform the future? And I also love this. This was something I picked up this time is the subtle way it talks about is the past destined to be replayed. You actually see yeah. Ray's character say early that he doesn't like history because it's just a st- bunch of stuff that's already happened. But at the last yeah. scene, we're watching history repeat itself, right? We literally mm-hmm. see Harry chasing him through a film set. And then it's the exact same shot of, you know, the uh, gun by his waist and he pulls it up and he shoots through him and he thinks he's killed a kid, right? Same shot, yeah. same coat, same gun as, as when Ken almost goes up to kill Ray even. And basically you just see the same cycle that keeps playing out. So anyway, the past as a character in this film, I think is fascinating and I think it leads into its larger conversations, which I guess I'm, I'm more interested in what you have to say about, which is guilt and judgment, right? It yeah. takes this conversation of the past and it uses it to talk about what is guilt? What is judgment? What role do they play in their lives? Can they be beneficial? Is it always destructive? Can you be redeemed, right? And I'm just curious, yeah. like which of those topics, I guess, really stood out to you this time around? Because I think it captured conversations of guilt and judgment and redemption as well as a movie can. Yeah, absolutely. You know, we're, we're, I'm, I'm going to cover this a little bit in my talking points, but not, we're good, but it's funny. Like the, the specific quote I wrote down that I'm going to reference later as well is when, uh, right after he almost kills himself or tries to kill himself and, and then Ken stops him, obviously. And Ray says the same Ray says, he's talking about the boys says the little boy is dead because of me. I've been trying to get my head around it and I can't, I will have always killed that little boy that isn't ever going away ever. And I think like, that's such a great version of what guilt is. That's yeah. such a great encapsulation of this, this problem of the, of having done bad things is that there's this finality to what's happened in the past or, or this seeming finality to what's happened in the past that it's just, it's like that happened and I can't undo it. And secretly, you mentioned the idea of the past, quote unquote, hanging over the movie. I think one of the best things about the writing is that it lets you get to know the characters before it reveals very much about them. Absolutely. You don't learn for at least, uh, I want to say 30 or 40 minutes that he killed a kid by accident. I, I was mentioning this earlier. You don't learn until, honestly, I think two thirds of the way through the movie that that was his first kill. You don't yeah. learn that. Ken Ken's wife had been killed and Harry had um had basically helped him uh what's the word I'm looking get for? Get revenge, yeah. Helped him get revenge, exactly. Had helped him get revenge for that until two thirds of the way through the movie. I think a much worse version of this movie would give you those details from the get-go. And again, that gets back to the subversiveness. It's by letting you know the characters before you learn the past it informs how you view those past actions by letting us get to the point of liking Ray and understanding that he's conflicted and tortured, that he feels sorrowful, that he's in a way feeling like, well, he's a good guy and then seeing the mistake and and the killing and then going back to him. I think it, it really lets you, grasp the level of sorrow he feels and the level of of 
to, to just kind of where he is in this situation. I think it's just great. And it get, again, it gets back to just the, the strength of the screenwriting. Yeah. Yeah. It makes me think of two scenes in particular. I mean, I think the one that comes to mind most obviously we've already hinted at is you see the, the scene in which he, he commits the murder, which is almost like over the top in terms of guilt, making him guilty yeah. where it's like, he tried to kill a priest and accidentally killed a kid also. And you're like, that's almost a joke, right? Someone shoots a priest yeah. and kills a child in a double. And you're like, yeah, well, that's almost over the top. And then it cuts straight to him in the museum and he's staring at a scene of torture. Right. And then he yeah. moves over to the painting of judgment day. And he says, I quite like this one. Right. Where yeah. it's, he yeah. wants the punishment. He wants to be punished. Uh, that guilt has just like this oppressive hold on him, which you see really throughout the entire film you see him at moments try to be happy uh and then very quickly you'll see him look in the mirror or something and it it just wipes away yeah. or you'll see that there's like this way in which he's constantly feeding that guilt no matter what he does I, the other scene i was thinking of uh, is the when he goes to kill himself and he goes to a playground and you're like he's just yeah. it's a perfect scene of that unfruitful martyrdom of guilt yeah. where it's like, I'm going to feed it and feed it and torture myself and torture myself until I get to the point where I can convince myself that destroying my life will make up for how I cost someone else theirs. Right. Or that yeah. I can change the yeah. past essentially by destroying my future or destroying my, my present. And, and I think that's, what's so fascinating about it is the film shows us in a very human way the delusion or the attempts to delude ourselves that we so often do because of guilt. You know, I think you see these characters yeah. talking about like Gleason talking about helping ladies across the street. And as if that somehow helps up for the fact that he's led a life of being a hitman, um, yeah. or that great conversation about the lollipop man and whether a bottle, uh, justifies you murdering somebody. Right. Yeah. Um, or even when he goes up to save him in the park and Gleason tells himself, I wasn't going to go through with it, which you're like, that's, nonsense right you were you were gonna yeah. kill him you were walking up to kill him and yet what's so powerful about ray i think and what's so haunting about ray is that in the midst of these conversations you never actually see him try to rationalize or explain away his sins but he yeah. also doesn't accept them he still falls into that yeah. pit of depression denial uh that he know and again he, he falls into a pit of believing he deserves punishment as if that's going to solve it and and yeah. I don't know. I don't know if I've ever seen a film capture guilt or the feeling of guilt that poignantly because everything yeah. I just said, apply it to the worst thing I've ever done. And I have felt those tendencies. I have engaged in that kind of delusion. I have I, I've ultimately ended up in a space where I tell myself self punishment or denial is, is yeah. the way that I'm going to make this better when it doesn't. Right. And I think that's just powerful. Yeah. I don't know. Yeah, absolutely. I think that 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 is the ultimate strength of the film is it's portraying the, these are not ideas that are easy to convey and they are not ideas that are almost ever conveyed in mainstream cultural contexts, I would argue. And that's the ultimate strength of the film is that it's it's even that it's even approaching these topics is is crazy and that it's doing it so effectively. I think is, is, is the best part about it.
Yeah, so uh, I guess the last thing I would talk about is the ending. You know, all of this builds to like what feels like an inevitable ending. Uh, and I want to talk about that because I think the ending is the strength of the film. And really, I would classify that as the bell tower scene and then the scene on the movie set, right? Yeah. And I think the bell tower scene is one of my favorite scenes of any movie. It's beautifully shot. I mean, you have this mm-hmm. the shot of Gleason climbing to the top of the tower with that unbelievable fairy tale esque like Irish music, Gaelic music playing in the background. And yeah. he has the blood spilling behind him and he's heading to save a life by giving his life. Right. And then you get yeah. up there and he wants to, obviously he's getting up there to try to be a sniper to shoot back down, but the fog's there. And yet he has yeah. like looked at that fog, realizes he can't save Ray safely that way and gives himself and, um, and you can talk about all parts of that scene where there's like a graying of all these principles where Gleason stopped a suicide, but now will allow for a suicide to save a life. Right. Yeah. Um, or that Ray who has been running towards judgment, the whole film now runs away from it. Right. Yeah. Um, and it all leads to him walking into the film set, which is obviously a Bosch painting. If you go back and yeah. look yeah. at it, it's Same surreal. imagery. Yeah. yeah, absolutely. Surreal fairy tale, last judgment. And then it just, that unbelievable moment, right? Where he gets shot and you have this scene of, I, you know, the white is fading to black. And the last line is, I really, really hoped I wouldn't die. I really, really hoped I wouldn't die. Obviously mixed in with the classic humor of him being like, what if hell is Bruges, which is hilarious. If hell is just in Bruges. Yeah. Yeah. And then it ends with like the uncertain ending where it's, you know, Ken's death, does Ken's death has meaning because Ray isn't suicidal anymore that he wants to live? Like does yeah. Ray redeem himself? Does he live? Uh, does he come to terms with his past by putting himself at the mercy of the mother of the kid he killed? And yet in some way, even as he chooses life, the film is clear that we don't necessarily get to choose, right? Uh, yeah. We should, we, we basically have this moment where we discover our desire to live. And we just have to hope that it doesn't come at the end of our life. Right. Yeah. Um, so I, I, I don't know that final shot is just, or that those two scenes put together are amazing. And I don't know if anything yeah. stood out from those scenes or if you just want to talk about the ending of the film itself, but it, it moves me every time. Yeah. I I'm always surprised. I, I agree. I, I'm surprised at how effective it is at how effectively it culminates these stories and, and this characterizations. Um, I think it, it gets to this whole, the, the film is holding, you know, when we talk about philosophy and, and spiritually, the film has a tension of essentially predestination and free will. Yeah. And, and it's something that they, that really comes up a lot of, and I think that has to happen when you're talking about the nature of guilt and the nature of consequences, because there's this, there's this one hand that you want to say, well, you can change and you can um have an impact and and you don't have to stay in the same place you are if you notice though from the scene where he almost comes himself on uh uh ray is constantly being acted on by outside forces yeah first he's arrested and brought back to bruges his his girlfriend chloe or, or chloe rescues him they um but then he gets chased by Harry. Then he gets shot. Everything, and he can't even prevent Harry from killing himself. Uh, 
because he can't even tell him that he didn't really kill a kid. He killed a midget. Yeah. Sorry. Yeah. It's, it's yeah. a funny, you have to laugh when you say <laughs> it's it, but whatever. So good. <laughs> it's so good. Uh, but everything from that point on, like he doesn't have control. It, it's all of these other things coming in to affect him. The only control he has is to try and run away. And even then he's ultimately unsuccessful. So I, I think that in a way it's, it's the grayest part about the movie is trying to answer the question, are you ultimately in control of your destiny and, or are you not? And I think the movie just like real life is unknowable. It's not really clear if he does have control, if he is able, I mean, obviously he chooses not to kill himself. He chooses to go living, but the force of, of the circumstances around him are still, pulling in on him or still closing in on him and he can't in a sense escape that um so yeah i I think it's it's it doesn't answer that question fully but it does it does render it very poetically and very beautifully i do also want to mention i it is one of my favorite shots in the movie when he gets up there when he sees the fog i think you're right that part that the first thing that happens is oh i can't do my first plan. I can't shoot there. But once he comes to that conclusion, I think you see him also have a moment of just loving the beauty. Cause remember he's yes. always loved the beauty of the city and it is also just a, a beautiful poignant little moment of, wow, this is very beautiful right before he dies. Yeah. And then um, it, and then it even, it becomes the fairy tale that they've been talking about this whole time. Where it's yeah. like, what would happen in a fairy tale? He starts dropping the coins down to get people away so he can jump to try to save his son, right? Yeah. Um, it it yeah. becomes very fantastical in a sense, and yet you don't feel that necessarily. It's And again, it's that paradox that I kind of talked about where it's the film is constantly trying to make you realize to some degree that life is normal and the normal is fantastic, right? That all yeah. of this is... It's a mix of both, right? And and yeah, you see him come to that where it's man, what a what beauty is this space, is this life, is this scene? And yeah, I I, I kept coming back this time to that idea of man, sh- I I sure hope that through suffering and through joy and all the mixed bag of life that I reach that point before the moment before I die, right? Yeah, where I I reach the point of acceptance and I can just look up and see the beauty of a space and. I haven't missed it over guilt or over longing for judgment or over a lack of presence, whatever you want to say. I don't know. I I don't want to say I really, really hoped I wouldn't die for the first time kind of on my deathbed. Right. Yeah. Uh, Because this is such a beautiful life. Now we're going to move into what we call the talking point section uh, of the podcast, which is where John and I both take a kind of a a specific theme or a specific part of the movie that really intrigues us or speaks to us or or hits us in a particular way. And we take a little bit of a deeper dive into why it speaks to us and, and why we find it powerful. And John, I believe you are going to go first. So, John, what is your talking point for In Bruges? 
It's going to be kind of a kind of a guilt thing, but but here we go. Justice is terrifying and mercy feels kind of wrong. Both of those words, justice and mercy, I think get thrown around a lot like platitudes, you know. But there's something about the abstract concepts of them that's that's genuinely frightening. If you think for a few minutes about absolute justice, about true eye for an eye, force the world to be fair justice, I think it ought to leave you shaking. You know, when it when I think about it, I end up thinking about all these things I've done. I think about the time that I maybe had a friend who was being bullied, and rather than stand up for him, I joined in to avoid embarrassment. I think about the time I took advantage of a bureaucratic loophole and it caused disciplinary action against someone I've never met who didn't do anything wrong. I think about the time that I yelled at my mom because I was unhappy and I didn't have the tools for dealing with negative emotions. And in a world of true, absolute justice, I think motivations and circumstances and emotions wouldn't mean anything. Only your actions and its effects would matter. And every time you've hurt someone, you would have to be hurt back in equal measure. Now, some people might hear that and think, oh my God, that sounds like a great world. And I can't speak for everyone, but you know, for me, if I start thinking that way, then I'm probably mired in delusion because if I'm honest with myself, I think, I feel often that I've given as much, if not more, grief than I've ever received. And I suspect a lot of people might feel similarly about that. And this brings us to In Bruges, and and specifically to my favorite scene of the movie, and actually one of my favorite scenes in any movie, which is the park scene in the middle of the film. So Ken is told that he has to kill Ray. He hates that he has to do it. He wishes he didn't have to. But I think he also knows that technically it is the right thing to do. That's key here. I think Harry is right in a sense. Harry is even kind of merciful. It doesn't really play out this way, but his original intent of sending the pair of them to Bruges was an effort to give Ray a bit of happiness before death. In a way, that's very touching. It's honestly more than a lot of us would do for a child killer. Harry is right, though. There is this brutal simplicity to justice. Accident or no, byproduct or no, Ray has killed an innocent child. Ray himself explains the impact of this later in the scene. Ray says, a little boy is dead because of me, and I've been trying to get my head around it, but I can't. I will have always killed that little boy that isn't ever going away, ever, unless maybe I go away. So Ken is justified in this act. He has even, you could say, a moral imperative to kill Ray. And as he's walking up to kill him, something happens. He sees Ray pull a gun to his own head. And before Ken has time to think, he rushes forward and he yells and he stops Ray from killing himself. That strange act of mercy is one of the most illogical human things I've ever seen in a movie. For me, it's it's that moment that the power and force of mercy comes into clarity. 
because the strange thing about mercy is it does not make sense. It is unfair. The more I watch the movie, the more I understand Harry to be not a bad guy, really, but an embodiment of pure justice. He's driven by principles and by morals, and his world is black and white. They say it all the time. If someone comes at you with a bottle, you kill them, and it's their fault for creating a me or you situation. If you accidentally kill a kid, you off yourself immediately, because what justice would there be in a world where you get to keep living, but an innocent child can't? But Ken, in that moment, when he's walking up to Ray, sees the lie at the heart of absolute justice. He sees that violence does not end violence, that death doesn't make up for death. He sees that Ray's immense, overwhelming, drowning sorrow should not be the final note of his life, the epitaph of his tombstone. Ken articulates this a little bit later in the scene. He says to Ray, Then save the next little boy. Just go away somewhere. Get out of this business and try to do something good. You're not going to help anybody dead. You're not going to bring that boy back. But you might save the next one. Ken is giving Ray a challenge there. He's trying to help keep him alive. But in a sense, I think the challenge could extend to all of us. The things you do have real effects and have consequences to them. But if you let yourself drown in a chasm of self-loathing, that does not undo the bad that you've done. And as long as you cannot undo the bad, your only move is to try to do some good. Your goal shouldn't be to undo the bad once again, but to move on from defining yourself by it. I think that's what forgiveness is. It's allowing yourself or allowing someone else to move on, not saying that the wrong did not happen, but saying that it does not need to continue defining you. I think one of the coolest things I noticed watching the movie this time around is that Ray doesn't have a huge come to Jesus moment. He doesn't proclaim, this is what I have to live for. He doesn't find purpose or meaning somewhere else. He doesn't save a little kid from drowning or something. The very act of being saved by a friend, of having someone who knows of his wrongs but tells him to keep on living, that in and of itself sustains him. That in and of itself gives him life, causes him to run away when Harry is trying to kill him later. I think it's even why at the end of the film, Ray is, e is able to say, I don't want to die. I think that's the power of mercy.
So yeah, Mike, I mean, I think that the first question I have for you on that basis, uh, you know, is do you agree that those these kinds of representations of mercy and forgiveness are few and far between? I mean, that's why I was trying to say that, like, this was such an impactful scene for me in, in any movie. I just don't know if I can think of other representations of mercy and forgiveness quite as palpable as this one. Yeah, I, I don't think I can. I mean, I think one that's what makes the scene between uh, Ken and Harry at the diner so impactful is that you have, you know, basically two people debating in a natural way a philosophy that's so rarely engaged so fully, right? Yeah. In which you have this back and forth of, the boy had to be let go. I think Ken says, he says he had to be given the opportunity to change. Right. And then yeah. it's, you know, there's that funny bit where he's like, you're a jerk. That's all the word he uses, but he's like, you're a jerk. You're always going to be a jerk. <laughs> and maybe the worst thing that happened or the best thing that happened to you is become a jerk who has a bunch of jerk kids. And, <laughs> and it's hilarious, but, but in the course of this conversation, you're right. I mean, Harry is, is filling in for an ethical and a spiritual in a, a philosophical character of the judge and a judge yeah. that, as you pointed out in an animalistic way, or even a black and white dualistic way is right. He is right. Yeah. I mean, I think he has that great line where he's like, if you had let him kill himself, it would have solved my problem. It would have solved your problem. It actually would have solved his problem. Right. Yeah. And it's this vision of like, how could you continue on knowing the weight of what you've done? How is it possible? And yet, yeah what the film so beautifully captures is that built into, you could say built into humanity or evolved into humanity or whatever. It depends on what lens you want to approach it or what belief system. There is this completely unnatural thing of grace, of a willingness to forget harm, of a willingness to not let past behavior determine the future, essentially, yeah. or even how we respond in the present. And yet that is fully what makes us human. So like yeah. to be human or at least in our noble, nobler areas is to have that very nuanced, very complicated, very unnatural view of forgiveness at the heart of this film. Right. Yeah. Um, yeah. And I, I think it's the, it's, it's it, it's it. And I, I can't think of another movie that does it that well. I agree with you. Yeah. Or almost, and, and really almost any piece of art. I mean, you know, when, I think that my, my own personal uh, spirituality has, has evolved a lot in the last few years. But when I saw this movie, I was still very much in the context of, of the Christian evangelical church. And I remember at the time, I think I even may have said this to you. I said, I don't think I've ever seen a better interpretation of, of, uh, atone atonement or or I, I don't even know if that's exactly the right word but yeah, yeah of of forgiveness and mercy upon upon a sinner and you know that was after growing up in the in the stupid church and having and you know seeing however many number of, of uh christian movies that were trying to display that exact thing i think that this really hits it on the head that just that simple act of one of being about to justly kill someone, but you see them about to kill themselves and you have to step in to stop it. Um, yeah, I just think, I think it, it's, it's, 
a really heavy powerful idea that i don't know if i've experienced in another in another medium like that yeah absolutely and i mean i think it it is fascinating because what it does well it reminds me of kind of two things i think the first is you know it reminds me of the nature of grace which the nature of grace or unmerited favor or you know someone seeking your blessing regardless of what you've done or your good or kindness towards you right there's this nature of it that is haunting for us as human beings that is almost revolting, which is that it leaves us. It's one of the few things that we can experience that we have to respond to. So we can respond by rejecting it, essentially taking it for granted, not changing, throwing it back in the other person's face and further going down the cycle that we're already on. So basically doubling down on how we've harmed somebody, the person who's given us grace, or we can never be the same. Essentially, the other response is to say, holy crap, I I didn't deserve this. It was given. All I can really say is thank you and respond by not doing it again. Right. And there's something really unnerving about that. That is, I think, leads a lot of us to reject it. And I don't mean that religiously. I mean that like when our parents give us grace or when a loved one we hurt give us grace, we almost want to like we don't want them to do it. We're like, punish us, punish us. Right. Because otherwise I have to accept that I'll never be the same. And yeah, and I think that's that's the first thing that came to my mind. And then uh, the second point is related, which is just that it's the only thing that allows us to kind of grow from mistakes into who we were kind of created to be or I don't know how you want to say that, but there's something really powerful about that, um, that it allows us to fail and move upwards in a way that nothing else really does. Um, And you kind of see that in both the characters. I mean. Yeah, and Gleason is trying to play this role of the father the whole movie, and he sucks at it. He sucks at it. He can't fix it, and yet all that failure allows him to ultimately give himself like a father would for a son, right? Yeah. And then Ray, it's the only thing that lets him imagine a future, uh, ultimately yeah. to want to live, like you said. And yeah, so I, I think that's that's what stuck out from what you said. But I think you're right. I think it's powerful. Yeah. Yeah. I think my only other kind of question or follow up on, on the conversation is, you know, I th- there's this I realized as I was writing that that there is maybe a problematic thing at the at the that that could be interpreted from that. So almost to clear the air, I just want to mention that justice is not bad, but I think that's what's so interesting is the need to weigh and hold both of them in hand, the idea of justice and the idea of mercy. Yeah. And as has often happened, it made me think back to uh, the, the, I should have researched this a little bit more because I'm going to get it wrong. I want to say the, the, the councils of trial and retribution. No, wait, truth and reconciliation. There we go. The, um, so this was in South Africa after uh, apartheid was ended and the government of Nelson Mandela was brought into power. Uh, Mike, I think you know the story, right? That rather than create huge uh, trials and prosecutions against people who had uh, perpetrated horrendous humanitarian crimes uh, under the apartheid regime, what what, what Mandela's government chose to do was hold these uh, essentially trials that they would call the truth and reconciliation, um, um, you know, thing, but rather than 
hold a trial and then pronounce some sort of guilt. Everything was forgiven. Everything was wiped away as long as it could be spoken out loud, as long as it could be put into the record, put into the official acknowledgement of what happened. And I think it gets at the idea of like, well, what is it, it? It helps answer that question of what is between those two extremes, because, you know, on the one extreme, that absolute justice does have this this problem to it, that it it it, it only begets more of the same. If, if you're talking about absolute eye for an eye retributive yeah. justice. But there's also this sense of we can't excuse me, we can't not acknowledge what happened it's it's un there there's a, a, an injustice to acting as if no wrong was ever done and i think that is that middle ground of of you have to acknowledge but also move on because otherwise you're just going to create the same cycle over and over and over again and i think it's interesting we said earlier that the movie has cycles in and of itself you see the same situation play out and the reason that that happens is because of Harry, because of the force of retributive, principled, absolute justice. That's why he gets put into the same situation as Ray was at the beginning of the movie. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Yeah. So I don't know. I don't have a question off that necessarily, but well, no, just the idea I, of, of mercy versus justice. I, I do think it's powerful because I think the other part of mercy or grace in this is you know, what the film captures really well is, you know, I'm trying to think how to put this. Grace does not free us from circumstance or consequence, right? Uh, yeah. It does not necessarily change anything about Ray's outcome. He still yeah. gets shot. He still gets judgment brought on him. Uh, or I don't even want to say judgment, but he gets violence committed. Wrong is committed to him also. And yeah. yet who he is in those things or how he experiences those things and whether they are a, a whirlpool that sucks him down into an abyss of self-loathing and, uh, and essentially self-destruction is is the healing or is what grace deals with. I guess the best way to put it. Mm. Yes. He still yeah. goes through the circumstances of consequence. He still ultimately pays for his actions and in, in the sense of violence, beginning violence, but who he is in it is transformed dramatically by the end until the yeah. point in which, yeah, he can, he can choose not to be destroyed by it internally, that he can be freed from being broken within those things. I guess what I'm saying. And, yeah. and I think that's powerful because I think that's what grace is. It doesn't change the past and it doesn't necessarily even change that there are natural consequences from our past. And yet we cannot be destroyed by that, I think, is an important yeah. nuance of the film. It it, change your, it changes your response to it. Not yes. the, You can't escape your consequences, but you can change how they impact you, which yes. is the I mean, is the promise of spirituality in general. I think you and I have talked about this before, but I think one of the biggest mistakes people make when they think about faith and spirituality is they think, and this is people within and without any kind of spirituality or faith. This is basically everyone or, or people all over the spectrum think of faith and spirituality as something that affects the world around them. So I'm going to, the classic one is I'm, I'm a Christian. I'm going to pray 
to change how my boss is treating me or to change whether or not my child is going to die of the sickness or to change this thing about the world. And I would argue strongly that the, the most beneficial versions of spirituality have literally nothing to say about the world around you and everything to say about how you respond at what happens around you. Yeah. So not, not preventing this disease from hitting me, but changing my response to it when it does. I think for me on this rewatch, uh, the theme of paradox and accepting paradox really stood out to me at being at the heart of this film. I mean, it, it just kept popping out. It appeared over and over again to me at every level of the film. I mean, you see it in the paradox in the heart of its tone of humor and sorrow, joy and tears. It's in the setting of the film and the characters old and new colliding and becoming one. It's in what we've hit over and over again. Fairy tale and reality somehow mesh together the fantastical and the normal, living as one. It's in the guilt and the redemption, the suffering and the beauty, and obviously the conversations of heaven and hell at the heart of the film. And I think the film approaches these in this idea of paradox and whether we reject or accept it in a really fascinating way. The setting, genre, and tone all speak to the paradoxes that are built into our existence, the ones that we so often want to deny and yet are so present. And yet the characters provide a foil to them. Each one at the beginning is black and white. They are dualistic. They are stock characters. They are almost as simple in our eyes as you can imagine. And their morality, whether it's in Ray's poutiness or uh, in Ken's simple understandings, in their views of themselves, of self-loathing and seeming acceptance, and their principles, and what they want from Bruges in terms of how they even accept or reject that. And yet, as you watch it, you see these characters for a while try to rationalize away their paradoxes. And again, I think this is that ability of us to delude ourselves, because paradox makes us so uncomfortable. It reminds us we're not in control. It reminds us that nothing is simple, that everything is gray. And the questions that the film keeps asking is all about whether we can live in that space. Can we live with paradox? How do you live with the fact that you're a murderer and you yet you try to do good by helping ladies across the street? How do you live with the, live with the fact that you've taken a life for something as simple as a lollipop man wronging someone that they shouldn't have wronged. And yet you've been able to try to justify that by they had a bottle. How do you live with the fact that you want to stop a suicide of the man that you were going to kill? And so you tell yourself, I wasn't actually going to do it. I mean, you see these characters struggle mightily 
to hold on to their black and white delusions and understandings of their world and themselves and what they've done. And yet the film does this profound thing. It builds to these moments of suffering that shatters that delusion, that drags the characters often kicking and screaming into the paradox of our existence and ultimately into accepting it. We see Ray refuse to accept Bruges like a pouty kid because it's just not Dublin, black and white. But over the course of the journey, you watch him learn to be present within it, even as he keeps being dragged back to it, even as he keeps not liking it. There's still scenes of love, of enjoyment, of meaning. The first real happiness you see of him in the entire film. There are more profound examples of that. Like I said, we see Ken saving Ray in the park. The paradox of recognizing that though you are going to take a life, you want to save a life. You see the tower scene where there's beauty and fog and fairy tale in the midst of pretty much horror. One of the most gruesome deaths of the whole film. And yet there's also beauty in the act that a decision to try to kill to save a life turns into sacrifice to save a life. Black and white principles guide Harry the whole film and ultimately kill him in the end because he can't get out of the simplicity of how he sees his world that killing a kid should take his own life and he can't break it he can't accept that nothing is that simple and this builds to the end of the film that final scene where Ray finally accepts the paradox of his deeds of his existence of his own life of all that it means to be a human being we see it in some heartbreaking ways. Ray's last line. There's a Christmas tree somewhere in London with a bunch of presents underneath it that'll never be opened. And I thought if I survive all of this, I'd go to that house, apologize to the mother there, and accept whatever punishment she chose for me. Prison, death, it didn't matter. Because in prison, at least in death, you know I wouldn't be an effing Bruges. But then like a flash, it came to me. And I realized, F man, maybe that's what hell is. The entire rest of eternity spent in F in Bruges. And I really, really hoped I wouldn't die. I really, really hoped I wouldn't die. It's a scene where he recognizes he can't take back the past. That punishment, though it won't necessarily change what happened, also is better than ending his own life that he can somehow live with what he's done and go forward, making amends, recognizing it won't take back, but still will free him to a life that he can live. And he lives that, leaves that space wanting to live, despite it all, despite the fact that he may not, he wants life. See, accepting paradox allows him to try to live into who he wishes he could be. And it's something that reminds me of my own humanity. Giving ourselves the permission to let go of the past and actually accept our failures as the pathway to becoming who we could or even want to be. Is there anything more human? Is there anything that speaks to us more truly than Ray forgiving himself so he can become anything but what he is right now? And ultimately, I think it's our refusal 
to accept paradox that costs us more than anything. It's a thorn in the side of a, being a human being. It's that thing that we fight against, we rage against, that we want to deny, that life is gray, that things that seemingly contradict each other are both true, that we'll never truly understand half of what it means to exist. And man, we, we hate that. And yet when we reject it, it ultimately kills us or leads us to hurt others. And yet, when suffering comes, we find this beautiful opportunity through it. We find this beautiful opportunity to let the black and white dualism that defined our world and ourselves fall apart. We find the ability to recognize that our simplicity does not capture any of the mystery of life. And when we live in that space, we stop trying to control it. We accept it. We actually live within it. And we actually get to see the beauty of it. Accepting paradox is at the heart of this film because I think it's at the heart of our humanity. And it's something that allows us, if we're willing, to die before we actually die. A death to ourselves. A death that allows us to actually live. So, John, how do you sit with this idea of paradox, especially in terms of like paradox being something that defines both this movie, but also kind of what it means to be a human being? What What do you make of that? Do you think that that's true? Does that hit you? Yeah. So, I mean, you know, I've already talked about a little bit this idea of, of what spirituality offers us in terms of how we think about ourselves. And I think you kind of hinted at it and kind of got there that a huge part of it is that we do all juggle these kinds of paradoxes of, of how not only of how the world exists, but also a paradox in how I'm supposed to respond to the world. And I think one of the greatest gifts of, of spirituality is that it helps with accepting that paradox rather than fighting it. You know, thinking about the movie it, it, i never thought about in these terms yet but harry represents the ultimate force of resisting paradox and that gets to that black and whiteness right that yeah yeah he the, he, he struggles the whole movie to create the straightforwardness that he sees the world as being to erase the paradox of nature and ultimately he suffers for it he dies i mean yeah and yeah, he's the and, only one who kills himself in the end yeah 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 and i think that the journey of the other characters mostly uh, uh ken and, and ray obviously is in res how they respond to paradox and i think that you know I, I think about the great uh the greatness of ken saying to harry when he knows harry has come to kill him i'm not going to fight you I'm, I'm fine with it. I, I accept fully what you are saying to me and I accept fully my actions, which did the opposite of that. And I think it, it's like that ultimate statement of, um, yeah, of, of just accepting that level of, of uh, paradox in the world. And that's what he's arrived at. And you even see in that scene that Harry is just flabbergasted. He's kind of annoyed 
he doesn't understand he's like what what do you mean you're not gonna fight you know so yeah i think it's a great observation about the the film and the way that that we live our lives in that sense yeah no and i i love that scene because like ultimately the only thing we can do in the face of mystery in the face of paradox in the face of things we can't understand is put ourselves at the mercy of it i mean that's really what paradox reminds us of is that we're not in control that our human yeah. finite bright brains cannot comprehend the vastness of things of, or even the complexity of everything. And ultimately yeah. all we can do is what Ken did, which is just put yourself at the mercy of it and allow it to, to be, I don't know. I don't really know how else to put it. Um, yeah. But I, I do think it's powerful. Have you ever yeah. felt in that human condition, the desire to try to rationalize paradoxes away? Is that something that you struggle with? Oh yeah, all the time. I, I suspect that, you know, if you're listening to this, then it may or may not be obvious that I and and I would venture to say uh Mike both are are capable of intellectualizing a lot of things. And so I think that that is because I, I very much enjoy overthinking things, it it becomes a very natural feeling move when presented with that kind of paradox to try to think it away. I, I, I believe, well, if I understand this enough, I'll be able to really, it's going to make sense in the end. And I'm going to find the link between these two different things that I can't really hold together. And, but again, it's the same problem. I'm still trying to exert control over parts of the world that are outside of my control. Yeah, and I'm still trying to look. I'm, I'm still trying to look for logic, and and to, to to be clear, there's not a problem with wanting to find explanations for things and wanting to, you know, and, and looking for ways that that things are impacted in the world. That's okay, and that's fine. But I think you always have to be holding that idea of I cannot understand everything. And I cannot yeah. control everything. And there will be things that don't make sense that I have to live with. And if that in and of itself undoes me, I'm not going to make it very far. Yeah. So I got, yeah. I got to be able to just let go of that. Yeah. Yeah. I actually, absolutely. And I think it's funny. It's you brought up our background and growing up in evangelical Christianity. But I think, yeah. you know, when I left the church as a kid, came back as an adult, one of the things reasons I left was it's refusal to accept paradox. Right. It, yeah. And yet when I looked at Jesus's teaching, it was so often you have to die to live. Right. And you're like, well, that doesn't make any sense. You have to, you know, you have to lose your life to gain it. You, all these things of, of essentially suffering being the pathway to life or the acceptance of suffering yeah. being the pathway to not suffering to some degree. And it's not that it gets rid of suffering, but it's that whole idea that I found when I returned that like, oh, no, what it's reminding me is that there are just things that don't make sense to my intellectual mind that are intuitive and that are true. And that if I would just accept, I would experience more from life. And I think suffering is the biggest one because it always comes up for me. But if I can just accept that life is suffering, then I change how I engage it. And I actually grow from it. I actually experience life. I actually, you know, I actually get to basically be transformed by it. 
rather than spending my time denying it or rejecting it and ultimately experiencing that fruitless martyrdom of beating my head against the wall. Why am I suffering? Why am I suffering? Why am I suffering? Rather than accepting it and asking, how do I suffer? Right. Which we've talked about before, but sure. But yeah, I think it's a, it's a big part of spirituality. So, Okay, John. Uh, well, to close this out, let's do our final questions. Uh, yeah, man. I actually have one right off the bat that I think is deep, profound, uh, instructive. Uh, and that is, would you want to visit Bruges? I am so glad you asked that because I did not get to say that earlier. And I was going to ask you the same question, not for the final <laughs> question, but I was going to ask you at some point in the conversation. The answer is yes, unequivocally. But I also realize that I am incredibly boring in the way that Ken is incredibly boring. Every <laughs> You're the single guy with the thing. Map and, hey, I'm it's the, the most preserved the city map. in Europe. I'm the dude who's going into the the museums and who's in the stupid church. Like that thing used to. I just love looking at old things. Yeah, and yeah. looking at something and being like, that was here in the fifteen in the fourteen hundreds, and people would come up here and do something. Uh, yeah. So I don't know if I was necessarily entranced by the magicalness of the city. I don't know if it looked particularly beautiful, but yeah. from a history perspective, I was just like, I so badly want to go to Bruges now. Like it's unreal. So yeah, it sold me. It, it, it's a good tourism movie. Yeah. It's really funny as like a, as a kid, I would definitely have been uh, Colin Farrell's character, like the pouty shuffling my feet in the church sighing a lot um, oh sure and as a I've teenager i probably would have been wanting to drink the whole time but uh but i think now it's funny i one is gleason not just like the spirit animal of dads is that just oh, not yeah. the dad it's just he's I, mean, I can imagine my dad being like oh here's a and just throwing out facts that no one asked him about like the entire trip and yet, you know, now at the point of my life, I would love that about my dad. And I think I'd love the city for the reasons you said of just yeah, being absolutely. around being around something we don't get in America, which is like this is an ancient city uh, compared yeah. comparatively. Right. So. Yeah. Comparatively. You know, you did just remind me, though, one of the only characterization bits that felt jarringly weird is when Gleason's character does cocaine. It reminded yeah. me, okay, so he's he is an ex criminal or he is a criminal and he is like this or that. But I was just I don't know, because he has such a fatherly presence, that whole scene was actually very weird. I was yeah. like, oh, kind of jarring. I don't know if that's good or bad, but you just reminded me of it that well, when I, think I first it's, saw Rather than diving back into it, but I do think that uh it's supposed to capture that Gleason isn't who he wants to be either and that he hasn't dealt yeah. with his own trauma that it's his just demons, boiling yeah. yeah beneath the surface but that's he fair. wants that's to be that father that. figure but he also sucks at it at times you know yeah um, yeah yeah man uh so what's your question so, for me johnny okay mine is a little bit more uh uh 
intense than yours but i did like yours mine is because i I was thinking about the idea of forgiveness and i was thinking about uh that question of of, you know how we forgive others how we forgive ourselves do you find in in at this stage in your life is it broadly easier to forgive others or to forgive yourself and has that changed it is definitely changed um I would say, okay, I'm still not great at it. Uh, I definitely feel like the human impulse is to, you know, from my limited perspective, see someone who hurts me, say, I would never do that to somebody, judge them for it, apply that judgment to their character. So it's not just that they did something bad, they're a bad person, and then ultimately condemn them. Right. Sure. Um, I think that's that's always that human impulse I'm, I'm fighting against. I think as a kid, um, I found it much easier uh, to, gosh, that's a good question. Sure. I want to say I found it much easier to forgive others when I was younger, okay. actually. Um, yeah. I was very hard on myself, and some of that was depression and mental illness, but you know, every small thing I messed up was the end of the world, essentially. And I was a bad person or I was a piece of crap. Um, Yeah. And I think as I've grown older, you know, I have been able to give myself a little bit more grace. Um, And I think that comes from your delusion of perfectionism that we often hold ourselves to because we live in our own heads and we know our thoughts. Other people don't. They know we know our motivations and we judge those pretty harshly, um, even when we're doing good things. Um, yeah, I think I think I've been able to and not by choice, I think by messing up a lot. I've just seen that perfectionism kind of shatter and I know I'm not perfect and I know I'm a, I'm an F up at times. Right. Mm, um, yeah. And that allows myself to be a little bit more forgiving of that. Um, in a sense, I think I went through a season. Where I was very I, I would say overall, I've gotten a lot better at forgiving others, too. Um, Mm -hmm. you know, giving grace. I think where I actually struggle with it the most is when it's giving grace to someone who is hurting someone else. Um, sure. The justice part of it. Like if, if you're just messing up and you keep feeding brokenness and you're just messing up your own life, I am like for forgiving to the max. Yeah. Um, radically forgiving in some ways. Yeah. But I still have this struggle, and I think it actually relates a lot to this movie, where the moment that that brokenness repeatedly overflows into behavior that harms someone else, like this justice part of me kicks on, and I'm like, yeah. okay, you're done, right? Yeah, um, yeah. And that's where I struggle with it the most as I've grown older. And I don't know if that's yeah. a protecting mode or whatever, but but I really, really struggle with it. Yeah, that's what, it's funny, you arrived at, because because so I've been thinking about that now a couple of days where you arrived is kind of where I did too, where I, I, in a way, like my answer became, I guess it depends on what the person's done. Yeah. That I, in a way I, I was like, well, I don't know blanket if it's easier or wor- or harder to forgive myself or others. Um, but I do know that like, I can easily think of times that I've been able to forgive other people. No problem. That's been, it's been almost a, a instinctual, just okay yeah i understand that i've did i've done that i i've struggled with a similar thing i can see myself in you um 
I think that like the struggle is when I have difficulty seeing myself in something when yeah. it's uh, when it's in fact, you know, I don't even know. Uh, I don't know how much deeper we'll go into this, but you and I were having a similar conversation about an hour ago. Like we were talking about the, this, this person who, who had done some, some harm and some grief. And we pointed out that it's almost more uh, annoying or hurtful that the action was deeply illogical, that it was a stupid thing to do. And in a sense, I think what part, I don't know if this is where you're coming from, but from my perspective, like that so distances the action from me, not because I don't do illogical things, but because again, I overthink. So if nothing else, I have, I have a seeming logical explanation. It's not always good, but I always have a seemingly logical explanation for something. And so you know, I, I think like that is a prohibitor towards forgiveness for me is that if someone does something that just doesn't have any logical basis, it lets me distance that action from me and say, what, what on earth are you doing? Right. Yeah. yeah. Um, but that's a, pro- in a sense, I think that's almost a problem because I should be able to still see myself in that action because frankly, I don't do anything, you know, depending for almost anything like, Oh yeah, I could see myself doing that. Um, but yeah, I don't know. I, I I definitely see that that struggle between certain things are easier for me to to let go of in other people than than others, and that's normal. I think absolutely, absolutely. Well, Mike, thank you, uh, thank you for talking about this movie. One of my favorites. Not cracking my top ten, probably. Yeah, well, that's because you're ignorant. Yeah, that's because I probably don't didn't understand. see the weight of it. Mm-hmm. It's because I. Uh, I'm too blinded by my uh, uh, philosophy and, 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 you know. Yeah, you just haven't looked, you haven't stared longingly at enough Bosch paintings of The Last Judgment. (laughs) So, again, that seems so cool. I would go to that museum in a heartbeat. Do your homework. There we go. Next, our next podcast is going to be coming to you from Bruges. Uh, (laughs) Be prepared. Uh, but speaking of next episode, Mike, what are we going to be talking about? We are going to be talking about almost the exact opposite of this movie in tone, uh, which is Pulp Fiction, one of the classics by Tarantino. So really excited for that. Another another uh, family affair, I think. Yeah. Fun, not fun Christmas, for the whole family. But, you know, it's maybe it's on Easter or something. I don't know. Yeah, I don't know, but it's fine, yeah. Well, thanks for tuning in to another episode of This Film Could Be Your Life. John, thanks for uh, getting in Bruges totally wrong. I really appreciate your bad takes, and we look forward to seeing you guys on the next episode. See you next time.